Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Michael Groner. Michael was one of many messengers who worked for the Taxis Syndicate. The Taxis controlled mail deliveries across the Holy Roman Empire, so Michael was kept very busy when the diplomacy intensified at Westphalia. In fact, Michael, you better get back to work. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later, but for now, enjoy this episode of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 74 of the Thirty Years' War. So last time we examined the year 1644, we noted how matters on the battlefield changed the shape of negotiations underway in Westphalia. France powered on alone in 1644 as Sweden ruined Denmark. But the much-anticipated Habsburg double-team never happened, thanks to the intervention of Transylvania, and the resilience of new marshals like Turenne along the Rhine. With their defences holding as 1644 became 1645, it seemed possible for Cardinal Mazarin to plan into the future with a new campaigning season. And sure enough, 1645 was destined to be one of the most successful years of all for the Franco-Swedish partnership. Those military ventures will occupy us in the next episode, but here, after dancing around the issue so many times, it is finally time to address the elephant in the room and look at the negotiations underway at Westphalia. The French chose Munster, the Swedish chose Osnabrück, and these cities were 30 miles apart, and within each there was no shortage of intrigue, bluster and hurt feelings. Supposedly the negotiations were supposed to have begun in 1643, but that hadn't quite panned out. Now, somehow, everyone was supposed to get along for long enough to make a final piece. It surely wouldn't be too much of a spoiler to note that it would take them another three years, and here we get closer to the reasons why this was the case. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you all to these weighted negotiations in 1645. During the negotiations leading up to the Congress of Westphalia, wrote the historian Kenneth Colgrove, a considerable number of problems of diplomatic procedure arose which occasioned serious delays in the conclusion of peace. The convoking of a general peace congress of the majority of the European states was a new departure in international practice, and in view of the great differences of these states in religion, politics, interests and language, it was necessary to reach preliminary agreements on procedure before the actual work of peacemaking could begin. 
These agreements were not easily and quickly made, and the eight or nine years of negotiations which preceded the Congress of Westphalia are a good illustration of the fact that the diplomatic practice of today is the result of an evolutionary process. Kenneth Colgrove was on to something, and he was ideally positioned to write on the evolution of diplomatic practice, for at the time he wrote this article in July 1919 for the American Journal of International Law, the Treaty of Versailles had been signed. Among the great peacemaking processes in early modern history, I believe we could consider the top three to include the Congress of Vienna, the Treaty of Versailles and the Peace of Westphalia, and this was echoed by other contemporary historians who had lived through the Paris Peace Conference. Charles Homer Haskins and Robert Howard Lord wrote the book Some Problems of the Peace Conference in 1920, and they had the following perspectives. Great peace conferences are proverbially slow bodies. The negotiators at Munster and Osnabrück spent five years in elaborating the Treaty of Westphalia. The conferences of Paris and Vienna laboured a year and a half at undoing the work of Napoleon. Judged by these standards, the peace conference of 1919 was an expeditious body. The Westphalian Peace Conference, which Colgrove and others wrote of, had undoubtedly taught his contemporaries a great deal, and interestingly the conclusion of a treaty which would bring the Great War to an end contained no shortage of roadblocks which Colgrove's forebears in the 1640s would have recognised. Issues of precedence, of secrecy, communication and even accommodation were all matters of great concern to statesmen in the mid-17th century, and this was sharpened, no doubt, by the technological shortcomings of this Westphalian age. Indeed, to deal with just one of these issues, that of accommodation, leads the historian into several fascinating rabbit holes regarding proper housing and the diplomats' struggle to find it in the, let's be a bit generous, rustic settings of Munster and Osnabrück at the time. At their core, the Westphalian towns were provincial, isolated and in some respects quite unlike what the more privileged statesmen were used to. The geographic location of Osnabrück reportedly was 10 miles from the site where Arminius's German forces annihilated Varus's legions in 9 AD and this singled Westphalia out as, according to one priest, the image of ancient Germany, heathen, disagreeable and full of bogs. Munster's reputation was little better, since it was known for hosting one of the most violent and infamous explosions of religious conflict in 1534, when Anabaptists attempted to launch a kind of revolution. The tale of the two Westphalian towns is rarely brought forward in narratives of peacemaking, but it's worth dwelling for a moment on what the hosting of such a pivotal congress meant to the two cities. While we might expect both towns would be pleased to have been selected for such an important task, the reality was a bit more complicated. Hosting so many foreign dignitaries was, of course, crushingly expensive, and both towns derived little financial benefit from it. Instead, letters were sent in a kind of panic to Regensburg, which had hosted numerous imperial diets before, and the town council of Munster asked for advice regarding the provision of wine. They didn't want to appear cheap to their guests, so new arrivals in the town were presented with free wine and regularly given gifts as well. Now, these demonstrations of generosity cost a bomb, but since new arrivals enjoyed diplomatic immunity, 
no new tax base could be drawn upon to pay for them. The gesture didn't quite work anyway, since Westphalia's setting, as much as its appearance, did little to impress the new arrivals. The region's weather brought rain regularly, and sometimes it was also bitterly cold, which on one occasion compelled the Spanish representative in particular to spend 19 days in a row holed up in his room. He might not have been all that used to the elements, but the elements played their tricks in other ways. They turned the rudimentary roads of the town into a morass of mud, and this mud was quickly caked on the wagons and carriages, as well as the disgusted representatives themselves. Interestingly, Westphalia shared another thing in common with the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, the dispute over language. Traditionally, in the medieval art of peacemaking, Latin was the preferred language, but increasingly, national languages like German and French were coming to the fore, and diplomats were forced to compromise. It should go without saying that multilingual statesmen were easy to find in both Osnabrück and Münster, since it was rare for a room to be filled with dignitaries that spoke Dutch, Spanish or Swedish, it was more convenient for German or French to become the informal language of choice. But with the imperial agent and the representative from the papacy, Latin remained important for symbolic reasons. Among the powers, only France seemed to resist the general preference for Latin, as the French presented their first proposals in late 1644 in French rather than in Latin. Similarly, some German figures wanted the final treaty to be written in German, as the Peace of Augsburg had been, but they had to make do with only a translation of the Latin treaty. This created problems, not just among the disgruntled plenipotentiaries, but also with the texts that were produced. Different translations could pose substantial problems to the jurist, where words or terms in one language could mean something very different in another. It is not too surprising, therefore, that lawyers were well in demand during the negotiations, and interpretation became crucially important for the sake of implementation. Many figures could understand more languages than they could comfortably speak themselves, and when it came time to compose official documents, it is unsurprising that individuals reverted to the language they were most comfortable with. Although it had a considerable legacy in history, Latin was increasingly falling out of favour as the language of international peacemaking, and some officials, in particular the French official Abel Servian, could not speak or understand Latin comfortably at all. This led to speculation about his mental fitness, which Abel Servian pushed through, but he was little use when seated among those that reverted to Latin regularly, and he would even go as far as skipping meals on occasion because, according to his chaplain, he could not stomach so much fish and so much Latin. Of course, it didn't matter what language was used if the important messages which were pinged between the relevant cities could not be accessed in time. Westphalian diplomacy was reliant upon the rudimentary postage system, which the war had only served to undermine. On some occasions, privileged officials would rely on messengers. These were individuals employed solely for the purpose of absorbing information in one place, only to travel to another, and communicate all they had learned. This was useful for the sake of security, as there was no written record or letters to intercept, but it was also expensive and inefficient, and, of course, dependent on the memory of the messenger for vital details. Generally, then, letters were depended upon as a rule of the conference. Much of the empire was covered by an imperial postal service, 
under the control of the Taxis family, but although it had been expanded to include Westphalian towns, the more distant regions, such as Brandenburg, were actually excluded from the service and had to establish their own lines of communication. Further, the service operated on time-and-tested traditions, and since the 10,000 or so residents of Osnabrück or Münster had never warranted a direct line to Vienna, for instance, these direct lines had to be established, as would other lines with Brussels, since Madrid was too far away for the negotiations for the Spanish to stay in the loop. And staying in the loop was critical for the major powers, if they were to have any impact or input into what was taking place in Westphalia. In this respect, they were at the mercy of the taxis' postal service in the empire, in addition to whatever systems they had set up themselves. Geography, naturally enough, played a critical role in determining how long communications might take. The Dutch were fortunate, because Westphalia was comparatively near their borders, Indeed, the French had petitioned for Munster for the very reason that its close proximity to the Netherlands might encourage the Dutch to attend, but others suffered from accidents of geography. It took letters a month to reach Madrid, two weeks to reach either Vienna or Stockholm, ten days to reach Paris, but only two days to reach The Hague. The system became more refined as the negotiations entered their second and third years with the French receiving and sending their letters to Paris within a week, and Madrid three weeks, though they tended to rely on Brussels because of this delay. The process still could be painfully slow. Predictably enough, the process was hampered further by the slow machinery of bureaucracy, which some powers also endured. A good example of this painful bureaucracy is provided by Spain already at a disadvantage thanks to their distance from Westphalia. Haste rarely seemed to be within the vocabulary of King Philip IV's regime, as one example of a letter arriving in June and receiving a reply in September proves. The Spanish agent on the ground in Westphalia found this intolerable, understandably enough, and marked letters as urgent when he required a faster turnaround, but this only improved the process slightly. One letter sent in early January was returned by mid-March, for example. Of course, upon enduring this maddening delay, it regularly transpired that the situation which the Spanish agent had been talking about in the first place had completely changed by the time the reply arrived. Shorn of the wireless telegram services which powered the Paris Peace Conference, figures at Westphalia were not surprised to note that the lack of any sophisticated communications network let them down. After all, many had been enduring the hit-and-miss postal service long before attending at Westphalia. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Rudimentary concepts like diplomatic immunity in their early stages at Westphalia were ideally supposed to apply to diplomatic communications as well. Communication was hard enough without worrying whether one's enemy was intercepting these letters and revealing their secrets. Some made use of equally rudimentary encryption methods, but simpler tools like wax seals were also still upheld, since one could at least be sure that the letter had travelled unspoiled if the seal was also unspoiled. And this was often the best one could do, and the pressures of time meant one was forced to rely on one's enemies a lot for the safe passage of mail. The Spanish again come to mind, as Madrid made use of a land route for its communications that ran through French territory. Now a certain gentlemanly code was believed to apply, and improved as well as the negotiations progressed, but exceptions were made. Military communications were fair game, and in the case of more sensitive communication, such as the confirmation of peace treaties that brought to an end wars that the French wanted to continue, Philip IV had to adapt. Thus, when the Peace of Munster brought the Spanish-Dutch War to an end, the Spanish king made sure to send four different copies of the ratified treaties through four different routes in case the French tried to seize these documents and prolong the war to their own advantage. These precautions were worthwhile, as the French imprisoned the Spanish courier for ten days, but thankfully missed the couriers who were travelling by sea. Plenipotentiaries, of course, didn't just have to talk, they also had to live and eat during the numerous years where Westphalia was their home. Although a veritable army of diplomats had descended upon Osnabrück and Munster, these individuals were bound to have an easier time finding food than the actual common soldier, and they certainly ate better than soldiers did. Larger embassies like the French and Imperials brought their own cooks, but many were not so fortunate. For instance, the leader of the French embassy brought 12 cooks and 5 bakers, but these culinary artists could not work miracles. They were limited by the availability of food, the North European climate and general shortages aggravated by the war. Cooks tended to employ buyers to bring them the best quality foods and deals, beef and fish being the most popular meats, supplemented by birds and occasionally wild game. This contrasts with the soldier or humble peasant who rarely ate meat and survived on a diet largely composed of bread and beer if he could get it. Cabbages, turnips, potatoes, lemons, pears and cherries were available seasonally, but an official typically enjoyed a diet high in fat and alcohol, which, if we know our health studies, tended to increase the cases of gout among the more well-to-do representatives. Gout and other bouts of illness only served to underline the very rudimentary knowledge of the medical profession and indeed human anatomy which 17th century science possessed. Surprisingly, perhaps, this led to cooperation among even enemy delegations over the questions of health, as the French would give their physicians on lend to the Spanish and vice versa. 
Some would blame the harsh climate for the poor health of the ambassadors, rarely considering the fact that many were the ideal candidates for gout as middle-aged men on a diet high in fat and alcohol. Poor hygiene, rudimentary sanitation, lack of antibiotics of course and a range of other factors played a role, as did simple accidents. Maximilian von Trotzmendorf, the imperial plenipotentiary, was unfortunate enough to suffer from a crab claw lodged in his windpipe and took more than six months to recover from the consequences of such a horrible trauma. Nor would Trotmansdorf be permitted to return home during the length of his illness. For the five years or so that the Westphalian negotiations were in session, Osnabrück and Münster became the new home for these dignitaries. It is therefore unsurprising that they did their best to make themselves at home. To some, this meant engaging in pleasures like the theatre or early representations of the ballet. But to others, it meant indulging in bouts of drinking and socialising. The French ordered so much wine from Bordeaux through the Netherlands, 30,000 litres to be exact, that the Dutch attempted to charge import duties because they suspected the French were going to sell this wine to their neighbours. Not so, though. The wine was consumed by the French embassy in Münster, and to the palpable horror of the papal delegate, neither the French nor any other European power kept with the southern tradition of mixing their wine with water. Wine was at least more palatable than beer, which not even Maximilian of Bavaria could claim to stomach. Unfortunately, not everyone could handle their alcohol with equal sophistication. One is drawn to the example of the Transylvanian delegate, who caused quite a scene by becoming drunk at dinner, and shortly afterwards threw up in a Dutch carriage. The Dutch were so offended that they refused to meet with him afterwards. Other delegates adopted means of getting around the difficulties which alcohol caused, The French, for instance, insisted that by the afternoon it was pointless to try and negotiate with Johan Oxenstierna, the Swedish representative, because he was always drunk by the afternoon. Perhaps Oxenstierna had reason to indulge. His father, the Swedish Chancellor, ran a tight ship back in Stockholm, and while it was certainly invaluable to have one's father in so high a position, it could also be a curse. When Johan's wife died in August 1646, he understandably required some leave for his bereavement. I am downright sick because of my blessed dear wife's death so that I don't even know what to do, he wrote to the one person he believed might offer some sympathy, his father. But the Swedish Chancellor couldn't afford to bend the rules, even for his son. To leave the negotiations would delay everything, and who was to say Johan would even return from his grief? Besides, as the senior Oxenstierna maintained, It would not be fitting to let you sink down on account of your domestic problem and let others judge contemptuously of you. Sure, the Swedish Chancellor's comments do not age well, but the senior Oxenstierna was concerned not merely for what other people might say of his son, he was also concerned for what they might think of Sweden. The question of prestige and of precedence, which was closely linked to it, was probably the most maddening aspect of the Westphalian negotiations, and it certainly appears the most alien concept to the modern reader. But by the 1640s, it was not at all a new idea. In 1637, no less a figure than Hugo Grotius, representing Sweden, had engaged in a dispute with the English as his carriage attempted to enter Paris. The dispute was over preeminence, or in this case, literally the question of who would enter the city first, and it broke into open conflict between the two embassies, 
and was only halted when the French themselves intervened. The dispute was not solved for several months, though, and Grotius argued with his English counterpart over the grounds for preeminence, making use of points like who had converted to Christianity first. Grotius even went as far as disputing the French account of this whole incident, because England's name was placed before that of Sweden in the written account. What are we to make of such a curious incident? What were the English and Swedes actually fighting about? Hugo Grotius is known as a father of international law, but he was fighting for nothing less than Sweden's position in the pecking order of states. This pecking order could be reflected in the most surprising of ways. In 1637, for instance, it was a question of who was allowed into Paris first. At Westphalia, though, it was often something as simple as who sat where on the long table where negotiations were held. It was also seen in the arrival of dignitaries at Westphalia. The more powerful the state represented, it was said, the more extravagant the entourage of the dignitary. Take, for instance, the Duke of Longueville, the leader of the French delegation, who arrived at Munster on the 30th of June 1645. Longueville's party was led by twelve mules, richly decorated with blankets embroidered with the family's coat of arms, followed by fifty finely dressed cavaliers and twelve of the Duke's personal riding horses. Twenty-two of his pages followed this display, along with twelve members of his own private Swiss guard. Behind them came the Duke himself and the other French delegates, guarded by a measly twenty horsemen. Longueville wanted to make it clear that France was the leader of the conference in Munster, by splendour alone, and that he was the leader of its embassy. Such a display announced to Munster that a powerful figure had arrived, but it also laid down the gauntlet to those that might challenge the image of France, such as her Spanish enemy. Surprisingly, given the Spanish propensity for ceremonials, Longueville's Spanish counterpart arrived in relative secrecy five days later, as did Trotmansdorf, the unfortunate crab-claw guy, who arrived several months after him. Since the Spanish couldn't match the French display, they tried to avoid the whole practice entirely, but this was not always possible. When out and about, ambassadors tended to bring men or beasts with them as a symbol of their wealth and power, and when setting up shop, the pressure was also on to create a base worthy of their rank and name. These displays could be practically useful, as it would inform the unaccustomed where he might stand by measuring his own resources against the display. The custom was recognised by contemporaries, such as the 17th century mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal, who noted in his Pensées that How rightly do we distinguish men by external appearances rather than by internal qualities? Which of us two shall have precedence? Who will give place to the other? The least clever. But I am as clever as he. We should have to fight over this. He has four lackeys, and I have only one. This can be seen. We have only to count. It falls to me to yield, and I am a fool if I contest the matter. By this means we are at peace, which is the greatest of boons. It was not merely the size of one's deputation, but the form of government that could affect the reception in Munster or Osnabrück. Thus the agents of republics, such as the Venetians or Dutch, would not be regarded as highly as those who represented kings, like the French, Swedish or Spanish, and the imperials insisted that as representatives of the Holy Roman Emperor, they should reside in a plain all of their own. 
Such matters were in dispute, and solutions would often be found only when allies worked together, such as when the French and Dutch cooperated to minimise any potential source of conflict, and the Swedish and French did the same. When set against one's enemies, though, the disputes could drag on endlessly, and even the form of address could produce mind-numbing questions on precedence and honour, which seem so wasteful and meaningless today. Insecurity had an additional role to play, so that ambassadors occasionally adopted the titles of their relatives or in-laws, such as Abel Servian, the French ambassador, who used his wife's title to assume the grand name of the Comte de la Roche de Aubierre, while the Duke of Longueville attempted to claim that, as Count of the tiny county of Neucatel, and I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong, he was entitled to the honorific of Your Highness. So questions of precedence and titles were encapsulated within the ideology of honour on a personal and national level. As aristocratic representatives of their nations, the traditions of honour had been passed to these men, and they were well positioned either to make great progress with like-minded counterparts, or, more often was the case, tie themselves up in knots on questions of precedence and achieve virtually nothing. Costly disputes about rank and status were not harmless. There is reason to suppose that the French refusal to compromise even with their Dutch ally in this respect moved the latter to make a separate peace with the Spanish much quicker. We may wonder at the value which was placed upon something as ideological as honour. What was the tangible value of such a concept? Was pursuing the point worth it for the French or Swedish if it meant alienating one's allies and prolonging the costly war? For some, precedence was an end all by itself, and was not simply a means by which statesmen could communicate their right to respect. As Axel Oxenstierna phrased it, Next to God and one's own morality, nothing in the world is greater than to be worth an honourable and respectable name. Even if this renown meant ruining his grieving son's mental health or picking fights with potential allies, the Swedish Chancellor believed the price was worth paying. The renown of Sweden should be upheld at such a level that her foes and allies alike would be more willing to accommodate her statesmen in negotiations, thereby granting her more opportunities to achieve her objectives. And what were these objectives? Well, for Sweden, as much as for her contemporaries, they varied greatly, but all were forced to abide by the limitations placed upon their dignitaries, whether these limitations were caused by the rudimentary technology, the shortcomings in communications, or the ideology of the dignitaries themselves. We have really scratched the surface, in a sense, of everything that went on in Westphalia and how it all happened, but I'm going to leave the story for now and we're going to return to it in the next episode, where we also cover more of the military aspects that went on in the background. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to this instalment. You'll be happy to hear that the fees are paid off, and it is in no small part thanks to you. Thanks so much for listening to this show, for spreading the word, and for supporting on Patreon. Don't forget, if you want to support on Patreon, there's 60 hours of content and more to come waiting for you. So, yeah, if you've got some money to spare and you just can't bear to be away from my voice for an extended period of time, head on over to Patreon or click on the link in the description below. That's it, guys. Thanks so much for joining me this week, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.